Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Thursday, September 1st. I'm Matt Katz, reporter in the WNYC newsroom, filling in for Brian today. Now to Afghanistan and what the investigative radio show and podcast reveal calls the country's recognition problem. No countries recognize the Taliban as a legitimate recognized Taliban as the legitimate leaders of Afghanistan. And that lack of recognition has come with palpable implications for people inside Afghanistan and those seeking temporary entry into the United States or humanitarian parole. Reveal reports that the U.S. approved only 123 Afghan humanitarian parole applications to let Afghans live legally here in these states out of about 66,000 filed. Compare that to the 68,000 Ukrainian applications that have been approved. Curious, right? So we'll spend some time talking about the ripple effects of the Taliban's takeover in Afghanistan now with Najib Amini, reporter and producer at Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. Hi, Najib. Welcome to WNYC. Uh, hi, Matt. Big fan of the show. Please send my regards to Brian. Oh, we certainly will. Absolutely. I'm a big fan, too. So it's nice to be here. Um, do you want to start by giving us a bit of background about the uh, humanitarian parole process, what, what, what that is, um, and in what scenarios are people instructed to, to apply through that process instead of, you know, normal uh, asylum applications? Sure, I got you. Um, and also just, you know, humbled to be here. And thank you for making space for this story. I think even before we get into humanitarian parole, I think it's just recognizing where uh, tens of thousands of Afghans were last year, but as well as Americans, ordinary Americans, uh, be it veterans or not. Uh, around this time last year, they were just trying to exhaust every potential option to get Afghans that they felt were in danger out of the country. And so um, at this point, the last uh, flight had left and people, you know, uh, were not giving up. They were still trying to figure out different uh, different avenues, different ways to leave the country. And so the main immigration pathways was the special immigrant visa, priority one, priority two. And so for this story, I spoke to, you know, countless, uh, you know, lawyers, people in the community, organizations like Project Anar and so on and so forth. And they've all told me that the one thing that kind of came through at the end was this one pathway called humanitarian parole. And so it, this specific application, if granted, it doesn't, you know, grant you a, um, a path to citizenship, so to speak, but it's something that's used in extreme urgent circumstances, um, exigent circumstances, if you will. Uh, and to give you a sense, people typically file this if they have um, a medical treatment that they can only get in the U.S. or if they're visiting a dying family member or notably if they're seeking protection from harm. Uh, why did people file for humanitarian parole around this time last year? It's because everything was backlogged. Um, we're talking months, months, months of delays uh, and the notion that you're trying to leave and catch a flight. Um, that's time that people couldn't afford. And so that's where the humanitarian parole kind of became a viable option. And one thing I do want to stress is this is something that USCIS, the uh, the, uh, the agency responsible for handling these applications was aware of. They had a web page with, you know, direct instructions for Afghans seeking this um, specific type of application. 
and to give you a sense or to uh, it, like the instructions were like please write expedite in black ink on the top right of your application hmm. so i just want to you know stress that like this isn't something that was just like oh word got out and please apply like this was something that was very much uh, not just word of mouth but um uh, a pathway that tens of thousands of afghans felt that they were eligible for because of the protection from harm. And they paid money to apply, right? That's right. So to to fill out this uh, this form, you're talking about $575, which I mean, $575 is a lot for me, but uh, it's also a lot for your uh, your average Afghan. Yeah. And this application, it's one per person. Um the average Afghan family is not it's 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 pretty large. And so uh, to try and get you and your family out, your the, the costs easily go up. And um, I guess I, I can talk to you about some of the findings. But yes, this was very much a costly process. So, so what uh, you know, you you lay out lay it out in in your episode of the of reveal, which was really fascinating and and beautifully done. But what happened? Why did so few? Afghans end up end up getting admitted through this process that the government had announced and that the Biden administration had, had promised was a was a pathway to safety. And so I think to 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 I guess delineate like this wasn't like advertised as like please you know seek this um, uh -huh. like as if this was like Operation Allies Welcome or um, special this is humanitarian parole has been around for for decades um, and so let's just unpack. Uh, this in a, in a couple ways. In a typical year, USCIS receives um, nearly 2,000 humanitarian parole applications. Uh, 2021, after the fall of Kabul, was not a typical year. Um, after we FOIA'd the government uh, for this uh, for this story, and this this was a team effort uh, from a lot of different people at Reveal, from the Center for Investigative Reporting, um, but. We FOIA'd USCIS. Uh, we got a, a bunch of uh, data numbers back and. More than 66,000 applications were filed. So that comparison between 2,000 and 66,000, um, there's it's a lot of applications to process. But there's also, you know, you at the tease uh, or at the top of the segment, you mentioned recognition. Uh, the U.S. has no active embassy in Afghanistan at the moment. There's no consulate, and so even that 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 recognition question is also something that complicates how Afghans seeking this, you know, seeking to complete their humanitarian parole application, it, there's no embassy for them to attend to sort of complete the paperwork. And so uh, I believe the, the, the government has, you know, advised, please go to a third party country like Pakistan or another place um, to sort of complete the process. But the reality is you have, you know, this pathway, more than 66,000 people applied, um, the uh, the agency collected nearly twenty million dollars mm. in application fees. It's kind of like it's it's the government is is in this position where you know they're they're going through these applications. And one other thing is um, one other thing to note is like right, you're filing this application, or at least Afghans have been filing this application because they are trying to get out of harm. Um, and you know there are stories that are just coming out in, in recent days, but. Time is of the essence. Yeah. And typically these forms take about 90 days to process. The data that we got back shows that it's taken uh, more than twice as long. So it's it's just like this confluence of like, what is, why or how, I mean, legal advocates, community members are just all left with this question of like, why? Why is the, right. 
You know, it's it's hard not to think of Ukraine and to talk about the numbers in Ukraine, which you did in your story. The, the, obviously, Russia's invasion uh, led to a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, and the United States therefore fast-tracked applications for people who wanted from Ukraine who wanted to come to the United States. Can you give us a sense of how the U.S. handled refugees from Ukraine compared to what happened with those seeking to flee Afghanistan and, and settle in the U.S.? Sure. I, I think um, that so uh, I think it was about maybe two months after Russia invaded Ukraine, the Biden administration uh, unveiled Uniting for Ukraine, which was an expedited humanitarian parole program for Ukrainians seeking to leave the country. Um, and I just want to stress like legal advocates, uh, groups that, you know, like Project Anar that have been, you know, closely following um, uh, Afghan HP applications and and this particular space, they're all for it. Like mm. no one, no one is disagreeing. Like Ukraine is very much an active war zone. What the Biden administration did with Uniting for Ukraine is kind of like the gold star. In fact, maybe like um, this is a model for you know future or maybe current uh, parole programs. The reality is it is strictly just for Ukraine. Um, and I believe uh, USCIS director Urja Du just was in, in an interview kind of explained, and this was just like maybe a few days ago, I think she described it as like the reason why this program took place, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think this is where I can quote, the stars aligned uh, in terms of how this program came about. The stars aligned. Um, what does that mean? You're talking about a, a far more uh, simple process. I believe all it requires is a U.S. to sponsor um, uh, a family or a specific person in Ukraine that's uh, seeking to leave. So it's just basically a financial sponsor. You don't need to go to an embassy. You can fill out the form online. You don't need to, you know, have evidence like Afghans do that say you're, you know, under harm, um, so to speak. So the process itself is far more streamlined. Um, but the discrepancy is, you know, let's just talk numbers really quick. Yeah. I believed um, as of early August, the numbers that we got from USCIS say that they had received more than 97,000 U for U applications, and they approved more than 68,000 applications. From Ukraine. So, wow. Right. For this Uniting for Ukraine program. And then compare that to Afghan HP applications, like specifically those who had to fill out this I-131 form. Um, from July to May, uh, the data that we looked at showed 123 applications. I, I mean, you, uh, you interview somebody in, in the episode who refers to this as racist. Right. <laughs> it, it's, that's how legal advocates feel. Yeah. I, it's. I mean, it's. It's. I. I it's. I, I'm speechless for a reason. I mean, especially considering our history in Afghanistan, and you know the the the, the influence we've had on this country for better and for worse over the last twenty years. Uh, it, it is. It is just kind of inexplicable. On that point, exactly. There seems to be a lot of focus on trying to get uh, just translators out of the country or those particular Afghans who had a direct, you know, assistance with um, the the U.S. occupation, the U.S. war effort for the past twenty years. One thing I I just I'd like to stress is like I think by doing that, or even the the political stance that the Biden administration is is uh, is do is like making by making that kind of statement 
is that all the like the only Afghans that you know are worth saving are those who had a you know uh, who helped uh, who helped the troops. Yeah. Um, and while there's a lot to be said about that, sure. Um, I think the thing to that gets easily lost is twenty years of involvement in that country. A lot of Afghans are going to have some sort of U.S. connection. It might not necessarily be with you know uh, uh, the military, um, but twenty years you spend in that country, the average Afghan is going to have some sort of connection to the U.S. Whether you are a translator or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and one last thing I, I do want to raise is like. This is something that our lawmakers have been paying attention to, like specifically here in New York. Um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Meng, who represents, you know, Flushing, Queens, which like just for quick context, like there's little cobble over in California, over in Fremont. But basically Flushing, like a, a certain pocket is basically like little Kandahar. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also like um, uh, Representative Velasquez, who represents Brooklyn and Queens, Representative Higgins up in Buffalo. They all signed a letter, even the junior senator from New York, um, Senator Gillibrand. They 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 all signed a letter, I, I believe, December of 2021, urging the Biden administration to speak out or um, to sort of comment on how USCIS was handling these applications. So I do want to stress, like lawmakers are paying attention to this. It's just the Biden administration, it's 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 the question remains, this is what we are doing for Ukraine, but this is what this is how we're proceeding forward with Afghans who are seeking humanitarian parole. Let's go to the phone lines. Nadir and Montclair. Hi there, sir. Salam, brother. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thank uh, you. So my question is, you know, that we've interloped. I've been in this country now 44 years. I am originally from Kabul. My father worked as a defense contractor. My sister worked with the Department of Defense. Everybody, the Taliban knows exactly how my family is. I had him at Abbey Gate on the day of the bombing. Got five people out to Canada. The other seven people are still there. But once they get here, this is my biggest question that nobody addresses. I have tried in vain because I speak the languages. I wanted to volunteer, go to the military base and go and run education, take donations and everything. Why are Afghans treated like prisoners on these military bases and the Ukrainians, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Ukrainians, get a red welcome map for them. How come nobody in Congress addressing that? I've contacted my senators in New Jersey, never got a response from them. I finally had to contact a senator in, in New Mexico who actually responded to me. Why are we being treated like prisoners and second-class citizens while the beautiful Ukrainians get the welcome map? Thank you, Nadir. And you're, you're talking about the, like, Fort Dix in South Jersey, South Central New Jersey, uh, was housing thousands of people who fled Afghanistan and, and living in essentially, you know, makeshift tents uh, for many months and through the winter. Um, Najib, do you, do you know anything about that uh, and, and the disparity in, in, in that respect? I mean, the caller makes a valid point, and I think it's, you know, uh, is it intentional? I mean, that's hard to prove. That's hard to say. I, I, and without reporting or documenting or having evidence to say, it's hard for me to say that. I think what it's a, what it uh, what it shows is just a reflection of the system. This is how our immigration system is currently built. And is it really built in a way or is the current structure really, you know, up to date with the times? I mean, one thing I kind of want to unpack real quick is like, and not to get too grand, but okay, let's say, you know, this is uh, just Afghan specific. And if you're not Afghan, this might not pertain to you. 
But if you're Haitian, um, this was you know something that came up at the border earlier this month. Okay, let's say you're not Haitian, maybe it doesn't apply to you. Maybe you're, you're Central American or you have relatives you know from that part of the world. I mean, you can keep zooming out, zooming out, zooming out, and just like there's a discrepancy between people that look this way versus another way, sure. But then let's let's like I I don't like to you know use this Game of Thrones idiom because I'm still upset about how the show ended. I, I don't <laughs> I, I don't mean to be you know make too much of a joke about this, but like it, it's not that climate change is coming; it's very much here. And so the reason why I bring this up is like even we're talking about Afghanistan, but look at what's happening in Pakistan with the floods. Like right now, the the way that immigration or specifically with this parole for Afghans seeking humanitarian parole, it's like it's a kind of like a political football. But climate change is here and it's going to, you know, force us to respond or have to respond to, you know, more and more refugees, climate refugees, uh, things of the sort. And if this is how our current system is is responding, is reacting, is is handling just, um, you know, current uh, situations, because you could argue that, you know, it's not just man-made climate change, you could say is man-made. Um, but it's just like it's 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 almost the sense of like, hey, all the alarm bells are going off and this is how we're dealing with problems right now. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to sort of prepare for, you know, much the, the bigger problems that are, you know, days, weeks, months, you know, years away type of thing? Sure. And how will we handle and uh, climate refugees who, as the caller said, might be blonde hair and blue eyed differently from those who are black and brown. I mean, that that's sort of going to be a, a looming question and a, and a more significant question as, as you said, climate change leads more people to, to flee their homes. I'm, I'm curious, Najib, you, you told stories of people who were waiting on their humanitarian parole applications. Um, what, what were some of the stories you heard? Where are these folks now? Uh, I spoke to one uh, woman uh, who, just for her safety, uh, we're just going to, you know, use her first name, Nulufar, and um, it's not good. You file this application a year ago. In her case, she, I think she filed this application a year ago, hasn't heard anything, um, you know, has, uh, you know, provided the evidence. Um, uh, she, she shared with us a, a, a letter that she had received um from i believe was the taliban the taliban's intelligence um uh, agency or group and you have you know afghans like nulufar who are just spending their lives in waiting in limbo and it's not just in limbo it's in hiding so uh you know we were coming out of you know covid where everyone had to you know self-quarantine or you know lockdown or there was you know that very cold winter where everyone was just inside mm-hmm. now imagine having to do that um you know, still having to do that, but out of genuine fear uh, of just what might happen to you. And you're waiting on this response. And the U.S., you know, made these claims or that, you know, they make these, bol- you know, the, I, I, I want to be careful with how I phrase this. But yeah. a year goes by and you're, you're it's, it's, it's not just, OK, how much longer can I wait? But you're draining resources. How much longer can you afford to wait? And then there's a psychological impact. So it all just adds up. We actually have a clip from Nulafar. Uh, let's take a listen. We are in our homes. We don't go out. We don't go shopping. We don't go park. We don't go anywhere. We are just uh, stay at home uh, in a very bad situation and really bad uh, uh, economical and also mental situation. We do not know how long we can continue to stay safe. 
That's from Najib's Reveal podcast interview with somebody who has been waiting on their humanitarian parole application is stuck in Afghanistan. Uh, before I let you go, Najib, I was fascinated by the end of the episode where you talked about the $7 billion in Afghan assets that have just sat frozen. Can you give a little overview of that? Where is the money physically? And then without those assets, how soon is the country's economy headed toward just complete collapse? Oh, you're asking me to do this in a couple of seconds. Okay. <laughs> well, people uh, yeah. can will listen to the episode, but yeah, give us yeah. a sense of things. For sure. I think, um, so what we did is we followed one um, Afghan economist, Dr. Shah Marabi, and he sat on the Afghan Central Bank. Basically, the way to understand this is like, this is kind of like uh, rainy day money uh, for the, the, the country of Afghanistan. So uh, this uh, helps stabilize the economy, uh, helps fight off inflation, things of the sort. Uh, since the Taliban took over, the U.S. has frozen um, around uh, $7 billion in assets that were stored at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, it's not atypical for uh, a foreign country to have money in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Um, it is kind of a, a bit unprecedented. Um, and so you have this combination of the fact that uh, the, the current country of Afghanistan uh, can't dip into these emergency funds to deal with their, you know, economic situation, which even before like the, the last administration was not on strong footing. Uh, but everything taking place, the you know, the uh, the exit of international donors, so on and so forth, them leaving the country, it just made the economic situation in Afghanistan even worse today. Um, I think the UN projects uh, more than ninety five percent are living off living off less than two dollars a day. Um, and so they're actually like the the Wall Street Journal recently had a, an article or a report that says the U.S. was not going to move forward with um, uh, engaging in releasing these funds. It seems to be like the seesaw of like, will they, won't they release access to these funds? But I believe after talking to Dr. Marabi, uh, and you can hear it in, in the full segment, um, it's still in this kind of also state of limbo. Uh, almost, we just heard about the state of limbo for you know tens of thousands of uh, people seeking humanitarian parole. But these $7 billion is also in the state of limbo because it comes down to this larger recognition question. And so for the Biden administration, especially one year on this anniversary, um, you can choose not to recognize the Taliban as the government in it, of the country of Afghanistan, but that also comes with uh, ramifications that comes with economic implications. And, you know, that also comes with impacting the lives of millions and millions of Afghans. I think the thing that we wanted to do, especially the team at Reveal, is like we often think about Afghanistan. OK, it's a one year anniversary. The, the lives of Afghans didn't just end when, you know, the last um, uh, cargo plane left uh, the airport in Kabul. Mm -hmm. You know, there are still millions and millions of Afghans who are just trying to get by. And the reality is uh, there are decisions made by this administration that continue to impact them severely. And I think that's something that we wanted to, uh, you know, hit on in this segment. We're going to leave it there for now, but everyone should subscribe to Reveal wherever you get your podcasts. Najib Amini is a reporter and producer at Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. His episode is called Afghanistan's Recognition Problem. Najib, thank you so much for your reporting on this and for coming on Brian Lair. We appreciate it. Thank you so much.
Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.